Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Um, as, as usual, Alina is bouncing off the walls because it's uh, ancient history today and we all know that Alina is a not-at-all-closet ancient historian. Alina, who have you got? We've got Liz Gloin with us, who is a senior lecturer in classics at Royal Holloway. She's also a blogger and a published author. Her most recent publication is Tracking Classical Monsters in Popular Culture. And today we're going to be talking about exactly that, classical monsters. Welcome, Liz. Hi, lovely to be with you all. Boom, Both. monsters. Who doesn't love monsters? We all love a bit of monsters. Very few people don't love monsters. I mean, this is kind of one of the awesome things about working on this topic is whenever I sort of say monsters, everyone's like, have you seen this one? What about this one? Oh, I love this one. <laughs> it's I like mean, the it complete was... opposite of telling people you're an accountant, <laughs> isn't it? Well, exactly. I mean, it was complete opposite of telling people sort of the other half of sort of my work is sort of focusing on ancient Latin authors and sort of philosophy and stuff like that. And I tell you, nothing shuts down a, a dinner party conversation faster than that does. Um, <laughs> whereas monsters everyone's got something to say because they are just everywhere they're awesome oh so i don't know let's start then how do you when you're with your work how do you define a monster it's it's a bit well it's a really interesting one because when we're dealing with certainly in the in the modern world if you thought about monsters who would you think about um you might very people very easily jump to things like the serial killer that kind of thing, sort of human monsters. Um, I'm not focusing on those in my work, even though there are people in the ancient world who would very much fit into that kind of thing. Julius well, I'm interested. for one. Uh, well, if you go, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you go into myth, you can think about Medea, you can think about Clytemnestra, you can think about all these sort of characters who, you know, who, who behave in sort of really problematic ways. Um, what I'm interested in, though, is I'm interested in the monsters that you look at them and you go, oh, three slavering heads and two extra tails. That Brilliant. was that would that would be the monster. Excellent. Um, which classical myth is absolutely full of, um, and you know we we sort of still see turning up all over the place um, in popular culture today. I was going to say, how many of them feature in Monsters Inc? How many have cl- classical links? Sorry, complete tangent. <laughs> no, it's all right. Uh, there is one. There is one really interesting one in Monsters Inc. Actually, is it Celia, um, the the purple one with the hair? Yes. Yes, who is sort of a bit of a nod to Medusa, but not a full Medusa. It's quite interesting. Monsters Inc. is kind of ve- well. I say veers away because he sort of doesn't, sort of doesn't, because you've got her who's sort of got this Medusa nod going on. And then, ah, the small green one with the one eye. What's his mm-hmm. name? Um, I've forgotten his name entirely. That's embarrassing. Anyway. Oh, it's a Polish one. Um, I should know this. <laughs> oh, my oh, my God. Mike. Gone out of Mike, that's, that's the one. Uh, Mike just plummeted, yes. didn't it? Never mind. Rostinkowski um, or something like that. That's the one. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, Mike's... Um, uh, Mike obviously sort of owes a lot to the Cyclops, um, who with only the one eye. Um, and sort of so is sort of riffing on that but monsters ink monsters sort of really sort of reference the ancient monsters they don't sort of replicate them entirely they're sort of doing a, a, a really pastel pastel colored kind of monster yeah. um, it sounds which, like there was just some early pilfering on the drawing board happens all the time 
Um, <laughs> exactly. But this is this is it. They find their way in as this kind of influence, as this way we think about things, the way we conceptualise what a monster ought to look like, whatever then you put on top of it. Sorry, total Alex tangent then. Sorry, Lena. That's on. all right. <laughs> I was going to say, apart from Monsters, Inc., because we can find the monsters in Monsters, Inc., where else can we find these monsters? Well, where do you want to start? Um, I mean, you can find them in television episodes. You can find them in film. You can find them in video games. You can find them in advertising. You can, I mean, you can find them in novels, in books. I mean, they, they, they where, where, where can I, well, this is why I wrote a book about it, isn't it? Hmm. And even then, that's not sort of completely comprehensive because there's some stuff that I, I mean, you know, I, I am not a video gamer. Um, I'm, I'm many things. That is just not one of the things I am. But that is one of the really live places that lots of monsters turn up, obviously, because you sort of need things to shoot. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just the way they work um and the kinds of story i mean it, it's and there's also this kind of this interesting thing about what mon- monsters are often used for in that they are often used in uh narratives with heroes right you know um if you think of uh theseus you've got to have a minotaur for him to defeat right um Perseus has got to behead Medusa, all of this kind of model about if you've got a hero, you've got to have a monster for them to defeat. So that's sort of one kind of story that often you find monsters in, the kind of hero narrative, hero quests, which obviously a lot of video games have that kind of quest narrative, you know, start at A, end at B, lots of dead digital bodies on the way. Mm. Um, And you also find that in um, sort of a lot of contemporary film. Um, where they've sort, you know, in order to reach whatever resolution it is, something has to be killed off. Um, doesn't sometimes it's very interesting. It sort of doesn't really matter which hero it is. They don't mind too much. They're like, oh, you're a hero. Have a classical monster. But it's not my myth. Don't care. Have that one. Okay. <laughs> they kind of don't really uh, follow what's supposed to be done. They're like, oh, look, that looks kind of cool. Let's do that. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, get really really obsessive about being really picture perfect detailed and there's a great example of this in the film uh, wrath of the titans which is the follow-up to the reboot of clash of the titans imaginatively named um to be honest I, w- I wasn't even like the plot nothing i was just looking at sam worthington there there is merit in that approach yeah um <laughs> Let me lose my track of thought there. Um, anyway, so he, you he kind tends of... to do that to women, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and not just women. <laughs> yeah, this is true. It's the standing. It's the standing and looking broody. Um, but you then, as I say, you have it right at the beginning, and because this is about to lead into a Sam Worthington looking broody and also being paternal moment, um, you have him sort of um, with his village that is being threatened and the mother of his child has somehow died and therefore we don't even get a conversation about this. He is clearly single parenting bravely. Um, And then something horrible crawls out of a gulf somewhere and then comes and basically breathes fire at his village. You would have no idea this is meant to be a chimera unless you basically look at either the press release material around this film or you go and look at there's a, there's a little YouTube featurette about the making of the Chimera and bless them. They are so keen. They're like, we did this and we met, and this is how the fire ducts work. And, they, you know, and they've clearly sat down and gone, what is the biology of this monster? Mm. How do we make sure we've got all the feathers and things in exactly the right place? How does this all work? Um, and then they don't even name it in the film. 
you're just like, what? How? How did you, that? I didn't how, even how notice did you, that. How did you do that? What? Um, clearly, some, some something in the editing has gone awry. And of course, the, the only purpose of this thing is to be interestingly dangerous, threaten Sam Worthington's small child, so that he is then able to go, ah, my small child is being threatened. Clearly something is wrong with the universe. I shall stand by this window and brood. Um, and then we get into an entire <laughs> film about daddy issues. Um, it is a film about... I mean, I actually think that Wrath of the Titans is better than the Clash reboot, simply because it is so much better connected by the entire daddy issues thread. It's much superior. You mean there's actually a plot? that helps yeah. um, it's not it's not a, it's not a film basically going we're not the one from the 80s which is what the previous one is about um ah. well so you we asked you to pick three of these monsters and we're going to dig deeper um oh. the first one you've picked is medusa because everybody loves a scary woman with oh, snakes absolutely. on her head so tell us about her Oh, she is everywhere. And um, the story that we get from her is really heavily influenced by the retelling that Ovid, the Roman poet, who's about in the first century AD, uh, gives in his big epic poem, The Metamorphoses, The Changes. And it's all about people changing from one thing into something else. Um, and one of the changes he talks about is Medusa's metamorphoses. And he is very clear that what happens to her is she is raped in the temple of Athena by the god Poseidon and Athena is so furious at this that she turns Medusa into the snake-headed scary monster so we've got brilliant early victim blaming going yeah, on yeah slut shaming going on there absolutely um incidentally this is one of the most frustrating things because of course all of the translations of the of the Ovid all of the, do they say that uh, that do they use the language that Ovid uses that makes it very clear this is this is sexual violence? No, they use words like seduced. Mm. And yeah, mm, mm. these done um, by Victorians by any chance. I wish. <laughs> I wish. That people still being, with a Victorian mentality. Still being done in contemporary translations today. It's utterly infuriating. Um, it, you know, it's just refusing to sort of actually see that part of the myth because we can't possibly, right? It's ugh. So you've got this whole tendency of, of that and of course when you're thinking about the story like that then it becomes about punishing women for daring to have sexuality right mm. um and then medusa becomes the symbol of this sexually powerful dangerous woman who then perseus has to come and knock on the head um and it all becomes about monstering women being powerful and autonomous and in charge of their own um sexual interest and that kind of stuff as opposed to the story of rape survivor being brutalized again um through no fault of her own which is what you get when you start thinking about different variations but one of the really cool things about the last what say 30 40 years is that the knowledge that there are two ways we can read this story has become more and more highlighted so we're starting to get more and more stories which do explore that victim or that survivor um side of things and start retelling things from Medusa's point of view and start sort of thinking about alternative ways through that story, as well as the kind of ones which are Medusa is a powerful woman who needs to be shut up by a man. So you've got those two conversations now going on in receptions of Medusa in popular culture, um, which is really cool, actually. I mean, I really, I really feel sorry for her like really really sorry for her because she's always portrayed in popular cultures and like this evil psychopathic i'm gonna kill all the men kind of mm. being if that makes sense 
because they don't always quite stay loyal to it do they Oh gosh, not at all. Um, I mean, the thing is, in, in even in the original myths, I mean, Medusa is not like wandering around, going, "I'm going to turn everybody to stone." You know, she's sitting in a cave, doing with her with her sisters, doing like nothing, out the way. And Perseus turns up and goes, "Aha!" So you know, this is, she's she's not rampaging. Um, you know, he actually has to go out of her way to find her. Um, but of course, popular culture place. Uh, popular culture does occasionally put her in um, a more, well, aggressive kind of role um, if she's sort of incorporated into stories in that kind of way. What's the worst um, incarnation you've seen of her? Which one just made you go, oh, "No"? I think at this point, I'm pretty inured to it. I'm afraid. I mean, oh. you know, it's it's just such a common trope. Yeah, I mean, there was a bar. There, somebody did send me a picture of a bar called Medusa, somewhere in the UK. It was like that's that's an interesting one. Hmm. You want your bar to stone people to stone? I'm not sure that's a good business model. <laughs> I mean, this is, uh, this is this is this is kind of where the popular culture stuff gets quite interesting because you get people who make references to this kind of stuff, thinking they're being ah, I'm being very cool. I'm being very. It's like, have you thought it through, really? Have you have you sort of considered the implications of using this image in your branding? Um, Probably not, sadly. Well, exactly. Hire a classicist. Hire a classicist to do your consultancy. We're very happy to tell you why you might not want to name it that. Um, but I think I think because this kind of thread of this very misogynistic use and understanding of Medusa just is so common at this point. As I say, I'm pretty pretty used to it really it's it's just part of the tradition and so while i don't necessarily shout at it anymore i do get more excited by these more reclamatory positions either that come from a place of saying all right you're telling me a powerful woman great so medusa is a powerful woman we'll go with that thank you um or alternatively ones which sort of explore that um that aspect of being a survivor of sexual violence to come to sort of a more powerful more enriched exploration of that experience Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, you did go with a male monster next. You went with the Minotaur, half-man, half-bull. Absolutely. Uh, tell us about him. Yeah, get, he's, he would be the second most popular, I think, mm. um, who turns up second most. And I think his, his afterlife, actually, weirdly enough... Um, has a lot to blame on well has a lot to to thank i should say uh for from psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic thinking 
because it's sort of become the minotaur has kind of become the symbol as it were for sort of a, a person's inner inner struggle you know you finding the monster within the maze and defeating it except never really defeating it but you know that idea that you know we we've all got sort of a hidden animal inside us you know the hidden monstrous inside us um and the 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 minotaurs half man half bull half bull half man that sort of whole um the way he can be used to think with about what it means to be human and what it means to be bestial i think that sort of is why he sort of survives as well as he does and explains the kinds of things that popular culture does with him in exploring that idea he lives underground doesn't he well, he lives in the labyrinth in that's it, it. Um, which make which is meant to be sort of it's depicted as a kind of a building um but obviously it, but it is a building that has no windows so you know it's it, it, it is it is dark it is um yeah it might as well be underground really lots of police lots of receptions sorry lots of receptions do situate it underground do sort of uh, give it that subterranean feel precisely because of the the idea of it being a very claustrophobic, very labyrinthine, very trapped kind of place to be in, um, which of course is is part of the point. This sort of the, the claustrophobic aspect of sort of coming coming face to face with the bits of yourself you don't want to look at. Right, that is that is absolutely central to the story. I'm going to bring it up, and I know Alex is sitting there going, "Oh God!" Oh, I know exactly where she's going. <laughs> I don't care. I'm going go to go on. Go for it. Oh, go for it. Okay, so American Horror Story, because it is one of the best TV series out there, however disgusting it can be. Um, so he actually comes up in the third season. And um, it's so basically what they do is they kind of put this bull head on a slave and then he kind of like morphs into this like um, unkillable, immortal character through the whole series. And, and I actually feel kind of sorry for him like really badly sorry for him because he's stuck in an attic he's tortured um and then he kind of just goes on this rampage killing people there's just like for me there's no classical background to it it's like we've taken a slave we've put a, a bull head on him there we go he's now mindful go yeah i mean i think that that's not unlike a lot of what um sort of thing, things engaging with this kind of stuff do they they take a theme and and they they run with it um i mean but i do think that idea you you can already see in sort of that summary you've given the way in which it's sort of saying well you know we're we're combining the human and the animal which is gonna which is going to be more powerful right um the fact there's a rampage that you know needs to be controlled all that kind of stuff i mean that's all very much in line with this this exploration of what is and isn't human um so while it's not classical in like the strict sense it's not following um strictly what what the classical myth says it's picking up on those bigger themes and what the minotaurs come to mean outside um strictly the mythic tradition what's your favorite representation of the minotaur i think the minotaur takes a cigarette break is fantastic because it's a really interesting um exploration in a novel about what it might mean to be this mythical creature who's lived all the way through in a world where people are like kind of sort of aware you're a you're a monster and sort of not and this sort of how you how you engage in the modern world with a brain that's been around for how many centuries and it's like he, get, he gets confused by sliding electric doors <laughs> i love what? it <laughs> and it's like it's technology um, and and it's 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 a really slow and 
powerful and reflect you know really powerful reflective you know what would it actually mean to still actually be a minotaur the minotaur if you'd sort of crept out the back of the uh of the labyrinth um, and sort of uh, made a deal with theseus to to get out of it and uh, you know how would how would that all work and it's it's yeah it it really makes you it really makes you think a lot about what that means and how that transfers in some interesting ways that sounds brilliant um your last choice you chose the sirens so they appear in the odyssey um and they're all over greek mythology tell us more about these winged singing women well, the thing about the sirens in the um, Odyssey is Homer doesn't tell us what they look like. Everyone assumes he does, but when they go back and check, they're like, oh, no, he doesn't. <laughs> they, he tells us what they sound like. He tells us where they live. He tells us what they sing. And he doesn't give us a single description other than indicating that they're female. That's helpful. Well, you know, um, it's a start. So you actually have this really interesting thing where, well, clearly there are, we've got early artistic representations for archaic Greek art, where you've got birds with um, women's heads who are meant to be the sirens. Um, and they then slowly over time morph. Uh, we can blame this directly on medieval bestiaries. Incidentally, you can actually track the difference in what they look like in um, myth bestiaries, categories of myth, where people are sort of listing what what animals there are and that kind of thing, and you can see that some of them carry on with this bird-headed woman thing, and then you end up with this visual tradition of women with tails like fish instead, which of course takes sirens into mermaids. Ah, so that's medieval when yeah, that that's, happens. That, that start, yeah, that starts um, sort of turning up in about medieval period, absolutely, as a visual change. That happens in Poland as well, actually, because I've been I've been daring to say this <laughs> this whole thing. I was like, yes, we have one of these in Poland in the 14th century uh, stories to do with Warsaw, which because I've just been listening mm. to you say that, I was like, yes, because we have exactly one of those. So you sort of get this, as I say, you get this sort of shift that happens in the medieval period from what sirens look like. Um, and then obviously you get sirens being sort of mermaids singing, singing from the sea. And so you, it's one of the reasons sirens are kind of, kind of slip out of sight a bit because they get subsumed into the mermaid type. Um, and people sort of are only doing sirens if they're thinking very deliberately of myth. Um, but they're, they're kind of getting a comeback as winged, winged birds. That again, this kind of desire to be authentic TM, to do, to do monsters properly in popular culture. Show I, show I was paying attention during my Myth 101 course or that I've read the Wikipedia page or whatever it is, right? Um, you're starting to get monsters being represented sort of a bit more as the sources say and that means we're starting to see some more winged sirens coming back which is quite cool really to see to see the shift coming and changing because of the way that the information about them is now being more available and people are making different artistic choices i mean if you're wrapping the mermaid thing into it then they really are everywhere in film aren't they and oh absolutely and i'm just thinking of their their little bitches in harry potter aren't they oh completely because like, is it not is it that they the mermaid think they are more sinister but then there's sort of this whole romanticized thing like hans christian anderson and now we're getting again like you say the more accurate description of them perhaps being a little bit cheeky and badly behaved well being a bit grittier no absolutely um and that kind of willing that i mean certainly the the very romantic the very 
oh beautiful women I shall fall in love with them thing I mean that's that's yeah that Lord. really is well quite it's de- it's demonsterizing isn't it and it, and also it's sort of flattening in a sense because it's all about and you, you get the stories I mean the little mermaid obviously and and you know wanting to have proper legs and you know the desire to be fitting in in order to be loved by a man because that's obviously what we all want in our lives is to be loved by a man <laughs> who will marry us and therefore complete our destiny on our marriage day and never mind the next 50 years yeah. um sorry not that i have no, but it's true isn't it it's um, like that's that's like the end of her story now and what she's supposed to be in that 16 exactly but then right. i'm not gonna lie that was my childhood every morning before school i would run up and down the front room watching the video pretending to be the little mermaid so i'm a hypocrite no you're not you're just you're just enculturated isn't it i mean the point is that spotting these stories and seeing the way that these things become presented as if this is what you're aiming for is part of why it's worth looking at this stuff. It's part of why it's worth doing the media study stuff and why, why it's worth saying. So what, what work, what cultural work classical monsters doing now, what are they presenting as a norm as something that should be done? Um, And they are used really to do this kind of policing work around gender, around race, around sexuality by sort of saying, well, this is, if the, the people who these characteristics belong to are the other, are monstrous. And as I said right at the beginning, when you've got a monster, you need a hero to come and knock them down. And therefore sort of say, well, that's not what monster, that's not what we should be doing. You know, if you behave like this monster does, wallop. And that's sort of a trend in how monsters work and how they're thought with in all kinds of culture. So stopping and having a look at how this kind of cultural mechanics of making sure everybody does what you're supposed to do according to a particular dominant group is actually really important. What is, out of all of this, your favourite TV programme or film? Because there's got to be at least one that shows something as close as you could go, probably, to the classical story. Well, I think my favourite TV programme, out of the lot of it, in a very odd sort of way, is probably Hercules the Legendary Journeys, just because there's a huge corpus of stuff about it. Um, and it's very playful. It's very daft. It's not at all historically accurate or mythically accurate, because if you were going to do the story accurately, it would all go to kingdom come very quickly. And you would have a very short series that wouldn't be able to be uh, family friendly and shown before the watershed. But I think what I like best about versions of myths are ones where they're not too serious, where they're not too, um, don't take themselves too seriously, because then you get stuck in this really fixed kind of, we have a narrative. I mean, another really great one is um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, by the Coen brothers, which is based on the Odyssey, where they are so playful and so clever. Um, in, I mean, their sirens are women who are washing clothes at a, at a stream and sort of get the uh, singing this song who sort of lure the three male protagonists in with sort of moonshine in the age of prohibition. And they sort of wake up in the morning going, <gasps> one of them has been turned into a horny toad. No, not that <laughs> horny toad has like any kind of subtext um, in this kind of context turns out that what they've actually done is they've sort of taken this guy and um handed him who, who's been wanted uh wanted by the police and handed him to the, handed him to the police and there's sort of a a, a, re, a a reuniting scene that happens in a dark theater that's sort of very descent to the underworldy um but for a, for a short while we're actually in 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 
a film which invites us to believe that he's really been turned into a toad by these witchy women and is sort of willing to entertain that possibility and, and, and live in that space. And I think films that try and engage with this stuff with an element of flexibility produce produce the best results, to be honest, rather than getting absolutely fixed into a this is how we have to do it mode. I have to say that Alina and I, being the age that we are, absolutely adore the Disney Hercules. <gasps> so much fun! <laughs> Love it. We do. We're, we're actually going to do a podcast about it um, because they're bringing out the new film, aren't they, at some point soon, uh, which I'm really disappointed in. Why? Why turn a Disney film into, like, a feature film with action? Oh, is this a live-action number? Funny. Oh, I've, mi- I've, yeah. mi- oh, I've missed they've, this completely. They're working through their entire back catalogue and spinning it for money, aren't they? Some are it's good, ridiculous. some are awful. No, none of them are good. None of them are good. The Disney version is the only version with the awesome singing that you can't recreate that as a live-action. It just doesn't I, work. Because one of the wonderful things about that is the way that it uses sort of the, the, the imagery of Greek pots in sort of cartoon form to do the kind of... Um, do the chorus kind of stuff around the mm. music stuff. I mean, how, how do you live-action that? And I, that, that was just, what was so special about it. The, the visual aesthetics of that film are absolutely stunning. Mm. Um... And it's still quite scummy. Mean, I, I watched that, I rewatched it for the book, and Hercules' fight with the Hydra in that is, is actually still really scary. It stands up as still extremely well paced. And again, how do you do a Hydra? In a, I think what I love about that film is that it crosses into this, this cartoonish world of allowing us to believe that it's real. Um, in a way that you can kind of buy into the real danger posed by the mythical uh, monsters that Hercules faces. And if you're doing it in CGI, there's just something that falls over. Do you know what? That, that There is never, this isn't monsters mythology, but there is no better example of that than that horrible Noah film where you sit and you watch it and you go, this plot is shit. And then you go, oh, it's the Bible. The Russell Crowe one where you're like, Oh. I've missed. I'm trying yeah. to say. You watch it and you're like, this is so unbelievable and ridiculous. I'm not buying into this plot at all. And then you go, oh man, they got this from the Bible. This is deep. I have to question my whole like understanding <laughs> of existence now. Well, alternatively, go and say a better adaptation, which is the other alternative. Um, no, but I think sort of there is this thing about CGI as a real, I think CGI is really deadening in some really interesting ways. Mad Max Fury Road um, deliberately did not use CGI for any of the really cool bits. All of the road chases are real. Um, all of the, the the people you see are real in costume. I think they only used CGI for bulking out big crowd scenes and for sort of doing weather effects and landscape effects and that kind of stuff for the big things. Everything you see being done in the cars in uh, Fury Road is is stunt driving, is live. There's a point to that because we've had uh, numerous programs on here where we've talked to Johan Griffith and Jamie Bamber about Hornblower and we've had like loads of sharp cast on and these fell into that bracket right before cgi really took off and became a thing so like when they were filming sharp the battle scenes they're not computerized and literally all the extras would die once and i think run off around the back and come back and die again um it's it's the way to do it it's classic yeah uh, you're right in the it it does the i think the deadening argument i i do think they'd be very different 
television programs. I know they're not mythological, but if they had CGI and they could just go, oh, yeah, we'll just sink the boat like a computer boat. I think there is something really, for, for monsters in particular, I think something about having them represented by computer-generated graphics really does just take take away from the power that they have i mean it, uh, and the car which cartoon doesn't because you're already kind of suspending belief when you're in cartoon right you you sort of expect things to be a bit yeah wacky. i mean it's like jurassic you know, park it's... they built those dinosaurs exactly they weren't screaming at a, I, I think was it an extent of it but they weren't screaming at a stick with a tennis ball on the end there was actually a whopping great something thing. there exactly yeah um so i think there's there is something really important certainly for monsters about not getting over in love with the tech because mm. i mean to go back to the chimera that desire to make this big thing absolutely perfect in every scale and every claw just totally got in the way of it actually doing what it needed to do in terms of a monster you know it had its slot and it was like yes look we read our myth 101 and then so what yeah it was gone worthington's killed it on to the next thing for worthington to kill yeah <laughs> You know, it just it just stops it having any kind of narrative power, um, which weirdly enough doesn't seem to happen in the Disney Hercules. I mean, you wouldn't have thought you'd be here holding Disney Hercules up as a fantastic example of how to do monsters right, but here we are. Mm. Are there any others that you really hold up like alongside Disney's Hercules mm. as the way to do it right? Yeah, I mean, as I say, I think um, A Brother Where, Where Art Thou is a great one. Um, and I think sort of um, Pan's Labyrinth film directed by Guillermo del Toro is also really interesting for sort of being quite reflective and intellectually engaged and thinking I mean I think as I say it's these these the pieces that think about what monsters can do rather than getting obsessed with the detail and getting the details right that seems to be the distinction. Liz thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about all these really awesome cool monsters because they are awesome and they are cool and for talking to us about the minotaur talking to us about the sirens and of course the lovely poor medusa love to have you back on again so thank you very much thank you it's lovely to be with you join us tomorrow when matt breen will be with us he hosts the explorers podcast and we asked him to pick his top five and talk us through why they make his list and why they were so epic so don't miss that don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.